Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shama, welcoming you to the July 28, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Returning to the show is UCI law professor, voting law expert Rick Hassan with his most recent book, One Meant and Written for These Times, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. In the second segment, we'll hear from UCI public health professor Daniel Parker about the tools that Orange County Healthcare Agency and he will use to launch contact tracing for COVID. We'll be right back. back to the program. Returning to the show is my first guest, Rick Hassan, with his most recent book, A Clear-Eyed Alarm, going into this election season. The title is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. It is a shorter work for him by design to get his warning out ahead of the election season. He recently wrapped, moderating his 10th Supreme Court of the United States year in review with another distinguished panel, an event which once was the local required attendance, but now virtually it's an an international event. Rick Hassan is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. His notoriety spreads throughout the land with his other callings, election law blogger, fiendish tweeter and author of The Voting Wars, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption, Plutocrats United, and the Supreme Court and Election Law. He comes to us today from his home, we're sheltering in place in Los Angeles. Welcome back to the show, Rick Hassan. Always good to be with you. Thank you. Well, I just want to acknowledge a titan of voting rights has just died Congressman John Lewis, he really knew the long game. He fully understood the pernicious outcomes after the Shelby County v. Holder case that undid the essential oversight over states that are now implementing very undemocratic measures. But I just wish that he could be a symbol to activate the kind of voter engagement that's going to be really necessary as this very messy season keeps opening up. Well, sure. There's no question that we've lost a real giant in the death of John Lewis. And, you know, my first reaction was, of course, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where he was attacked, was a uh, suitable for renaming. Uh, but I do think a more fitting tribute to him would be to uh, revitalize the portion of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court struck down in its 2013 Shelby County versus Holder case. And I think there is some momentum, at least on the Democratic side, to really try to invigorate voting rights should Joe Biden end up winning the next election. Okay. Well, at this taping, we are 100 days from the November 3rd general election. I've been trying to come up with a physical analogy, Rick. I don't know what your favorite is, but it feels to me like it's a category five hurricane and it's not that far off the coast and it's sitting 
with dumping rain and dumping and gale force winds that are manifest in how various states have underperformed in managing the primaries. I'm thinking, of course, Wisconsin and Georgia. What an analogy works for you because we're here to sound the alarm. People can't, can't sit back now. This is all hands on deck, every voter in the country. Well, I would point not just to those states that you mentioned, which are both states with Republican legislatures. I'd point to uh, New York and Pennsylvania. where Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, th- the issue is, uh, as I wrote about an election meltdown, uh, that this country has hyper-decentralized election administration. That is, rather than conduct a single election for president, we conduct something like 10,000 elections for president with different rules applying in different counties and different levels of competence. And so when an election is close, as I argue in the book, attention focuses on those weak links, those places where things have broken down. Now, unfortunately, with the pandemic, even those jurisdictions that generally do a good or decent job in running elections are overwhelmed. It's much harder to ramp up voting by mail if it's something you haven't been using regularly. The costs of running safe polling places during a pandemic are way up. It's hard to get poll workers, many of whom are older Americans. Uh, And so you add on top of all of that the kind of incendiary rhetoric from people like President Trump about the fairness of the election. And it just creates a very volatile situation. And so I I don't know what the right metaphor is, but I can say that maybe there's a different way to put it. I'm extremely concerned about the election and people accepting the results of the election and the election being done in a fair way, especially if the election turns out to be close. And you haven't even mentioned there's the factor of the social justice protests that are now there's a rationale the White House is using to dispatch camouflaged, outfitted law enforcement federal agents that are, uh, I, we, because we know there's like a $20 million are being outlaid by the, the GOP to dispatch to polling places around the country, but we've already got this sort of disruptive law enforcement that could be mimicked in similar kind of trappings at the polling places later. I mean, it's, this is really, really confounding. An additional factor, no? I do think that the militarization of the federal response to unrest in cities uh, seems to be motivated by, at best, a campaign tactic of uh, President Trump to try to further his Uh, law and order ideas and attract suburban voters who have been less interested in supporting his candidacy uh, in the last few months as the virus has raged across the country. Whether that's going to translate into some kind of militarization of polling places, that would be a huge escalation. It would be, uh, you know, the kind of thing that would, would provoke massive social unrest. And so I very much hope that it is uh, just not going to devolve into that situation. If it does, uh, we've got pretty serious problems as a country. Well, I mean, I know you recall in 2016, I believe around October's, and you talk about that in your book too, that there was this kind of lobbying the idea out there by 
then candidate Donald Trump that folks, you all need to keep a lookout on the at your local polling place, but they're they're putting money down now. There's a a little bit of a structure to this more than there was in November of October 2016. Yeah, I do think it's a little early to tell, and okay. it, it's hard to know how serious to take any of these things. I don't think anything is off the table, but there's also you know a lot of a lot of talk and a lot of bluffing, and you know we it, we might be lucky enough to get through this period unscathed. But I do think it's going to take luck and it's going to take not a particularly close election. That, that, that is probably the most important factor. I think, you know, if the, if the election were held today and the polling is accurate and the election's not close, then I think we will be in okay shape, at least in the short to medium term. What happens uh, longer term, I don't know. But if it's very close and there's the potential for disputing the election and there's been all of this talk about mail-in balloting being fraudulent and, and all these kinds of problems, then, then I am quite concerned. Well, your huge takeaway, we'll talk about that mail-in vote balloting in a minute here, but your huge takeaway is that you don't, that you don't shrink from is that regardless of who wins the election, 43% of the population will be very disappointed by the results. So you're always concerned about, it's the resiliency of the country's faith in the electoral process. And that's what you're talking to about whether the numbers are a large margin by which perhaps a Biden campaign will be successfully defeating the incumbent President Trump, whether this, the resilience that would be, the broader the margin, the more there's a prospect that the faith in the electoral process might begin to be restored. Yeah, you know, I think one of the questions you know, we have to uh, think about is the difference between disappointment and not accepting the results as legitimate, right? So it's one thing for people to think, you know, this is a you know, tragedy for the country. This is the wrong person to be heading our country. It's another thing to think the election was stolen. And so, you know, I don't think we'll be in the 40% in terms of the election being stolen idea. But if it starts to be significant numbers on one side or the other, then it really undermines the very principle of a democracy, which is that the losers believe the election was conducted fairly and are willing to stand aside, allow for the other side to be in power and to fight another day. That's really what's at stake here. And, and so much depends upon not just the conduct of the candidates, but the conduct of civil society more generally. Right, as you talk about in various examples of administrative incompetence or willing kind of interference in the democratic process. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI law professor, author, and election law commentator, Rick Hassan, with his latest book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. So you raise the point that more votes would be saved on the proper administration of the election than by stopping voter ID laws to bring out one. And But I, when I read that, I thought, well, but the Brian Kemp's, like the Georgia then Secretary of State, now Governor of Georgia, the Brian Kemp's out there, they, they work both of those angles. Well, so... You know, sometimes it's hard to know when incompetence ends and deliberate vote suppression begins. 
But I think my point uh, that I try to make in Election Meltdown is yes. that for people on the left to simply assume that the reason people are having trouble voting is because of an attempt to suppress the vote, that they miss a, a big part of what the problem is. I mentioned earlier that we have these decentralized elections. Right. Our election systems are under-resourced. There are plenty of places where you can look at, you know, democratic controlled cities. I think Detroit or counties, think Broward County, Florida, where you've got a majority of Democrats, you have Democrats in charge of the election. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to think of a political reason why Democrats would be suppressing more Democratic votes, although that is possible in some kind of cities where there's an old Democratic machine. But in enough places, we can say it's not because of actual intentional means of trying to make it harder to vote. And yet people are disenfranchised. They're not sent ballots. Their votes are not counted. The machines are not working right. And so I think a big part of the story has really nothing to do with suppression and has to do with the lack of competence. And that's something that is a lot less sexy. You know, you're not going to raise funds talking about incompetence election administration. You're not going to get people riled up and going to the polls. But I do think that it is quite a serious problem with our elections. And I think if we could solve the competence problem, we would enfranchise a lot more people. And, and let's just talk about this yes. in the context of the current pandemic and the move to vote by mail, right? All the attention let's to talk vote about by that. mail is talk about President Trump making claims about fraud and how much fraud is there. And I, I've done countless interviews uh, on this question. But yet, if you really delve down into it, what you see is that in the primaries, in places where they have shifted to more serious use of vote by mail in a precipitous way because of the pandemic, people are being disenfranchised. 5%, 10%, in some places, even 20% of ballots that are being sent in are being rejected because of technical errors. One of the worst I've seen is in New York State, if you closed your absentee ballot envelope with a piece of tape, rather than simply oh. sealing it with, uh, you know, licking the envelope, which is probably something you don't want to be doing during the pandemic anyway. <laughs> uh, if you do that, then you are disenfranchised. And so people are not signing them in the right places. There's not good training and ballots are being rejected for purportedly mismatched signatures. In some places, you are not eligible to try to correct your ballot. So there's a lot of things about the lack of competence in the election administration that fly under the radar and that really do run the risk of disenfranchising people in a close election. This could make a tremendous difference. And so I think the, you know, the Democrats' focus on voter suppression really misses a big part of the story. Well, I think they're looking at those long lines in Atlanta and the long lines in Milwaukee and Green Bay that had a disproportionate impact on African or persons of color voters there for sure. And, the, and as you were saying about mail-in ballots that are being not accepted that because of how they're prepared, that also, as you, you point out and as discussed, that there's a biasing of a greater percentage of those ballots being tossed, not counted, from persons of color voting. Yes, uh, uh, but you know, why is that happening? Part of that is, you know, I think you can say that in Wisconsin, for example, the Republican uh, dominated legislature 
refused to extend the, the timing of the election of the primary in the middle of the pandemic. And 175 out of 180 polling places had to close in Milwaukee because they couldn't get people to work the polls. But if you look at a place like Atlanta, there's a question of how much is the blame to be placed on the Republican Secretary of State there, Brad Raffensperger, and how much is to be placed on the Fulton County Board of Elections, which is okay. run by Democrats. And, you know, they're pointing fingers at each other. And it seems to me that there's plenty of blame to go around. There's plenty of incompetence to go around. And so I'm really not of a believer that there's a single cause that explains all of these things. I think I'm just going to keep throwing causes. out all, all, I'm going to throw all of them out though. Not, yeah, I'm not going to attribute it to anyone, but then it looks like there is a concerted effort to undermine the move to allow voters to vote by mail. And you put on your election blog, there was a video of this red, white, and true where the statement is made is the only, I mean, very straight on comment into the camera was by the speaker, the host, that the only way, this only assured way of having your ballot counted is if you go to the polling place. There's that. And, and I, I have it on background that the uh, this Florida State GOP is very concerned about the mail balloting, that they deposed an election official that prepared a 10-page memo about why that. I don't know the outcome from there, but I know that their eyes are on that mail-in ballot. And to add to that, what is going on with the White House attempt to sort of uh, wind that slow down and sell off parts of the, the post office, which is the infrastructure to manage the what are already, there's a, a major uptick in applications for mail-in ballots. So there's all of these sort of undermining's of making this safe way to vote remotely possible. Well, so I think, again, some of this is deliberate attempts to try to mess with the election system. And some of this is a lack of capacity, a lack of resources, and a lack of competence. I'm generally someone who favors in-person voting and in-person early voting when it's possible. I think the calculation is different in a pandemic. Yes. Uh, but I think voting in person is a better way to go when it can be done. That's not to say that some states have not been successful. Some states have been successful in moving to all vote-by-mail elections. But because of problems that some voters have in voting by mail, I, I do think you're more likely to do well by voting in person. Now, in a pandemic, there's no question that safe and accessible in-person polling places are going to be a challenge in many parts of the country, in part because of staffing issues and in part because of people might, you know, if the virus flares up just around election day, people might self-disenfranchise by just deciding it's not worth getting up and going to vote. So... There's a whole question of capacity, and it costs money to print these absentee ballots. People are going to request these absentee ballots, and if there's not sufficient resources, there are going to be errors that are going to right. be made. It's going to take a long time to count those ballots. You layer on top of that the kind of rhetoric from the president, this unsubstantiated claims of massive voter fraud coming from absentee ballots. And uh, one of the results that we're seeing is Republicans are expressing a lesser desire and willingness to vote by mail. Right. I think this is dangerous both politically for Republicans because 
as the pandemic is raging, some of those voters will decide not to vote at all. I also think it's, it's self-defeating. It may hurt the Republicans. I'm not sure if President Trump has a strategy related to winning the election based on this. The, the more nefarious and concerning idea is that he's doing this. And I think that Joe Biden recently said that this is how he views it as a means of trying to challenge the election results. Right. Uh, should it be close in November? Because if we see a huge shift of Republican voters to in-person voting, and Trump is ahead on election night because those in-person votes are processed and counted faster, uh, and then Trump claims victory before all the votes are counted, it takes a week or two before those votes are counted, well, then that's really a, a recipe for uh, the potential for an election disruption. That, that's one of my nightmare concerns about these kinds of issues. Right, and I, I'm looking back over history, I remember how in the year 2000, the public had a, a patience for waiting out the outcome. It, we were about three plus weeks where the outcome was not certain. And we move on, fast forward to the midterms in 2018, when Paul Ryan thought, this doesn't look right. We're losing all these congressional districts days and weeks after the midterm election November. And now Sean Steele is doing that very kind of work here in Orange County. He's an RNC affiliate and his wife is running against the incumbent in the 48th congressional district. And so there's this kind of building in, is there not, of this kind of impatience. We gotta have our results. We gotta draw the line right on election day. And, and so it's another way of undermining the voting by mail. Yeah, I do think that there, you know, there's a lack of understanding, although there's been some good reporting in the last month or so. There's, you know, that election delays are just a natural part of an election process when you have a lot of people voting by mail. We want those ballots to be carefully looked at. And so the delay is something that is inevitable. And there are ways to try to cut back on that delay, but it's also important for the media to educate people yes. about the fact that a, a delay does not mean that there's been cheating in the vote. It means that there's been careful consideration of these questions. So I hope that that message will get through and that there will be greater understanding on the part of most of the public, even though you're going to have provocateurs, including the president, making right. statements that are going to seek to undermine the legitimacy of the process. So the, for a deep read of from now on about what is in play, and whenever I approach you about alarming kinds of investigative journalism, you always tell me, well, that's, that person isn't quite getting the whole, the, it's not quite fully factual, but is there, I mean, besides reading election meltdown, but as commentary continues, besides following you on Twitter, I mean, there are people like Jennifer Cohen and Greg Palast that are sounding the alarm about, let's say, how many uh, ballots uh, have previously been dumped, uh, how much caging, that is, people that have been removed from the voter registration rolls. How do you sort of inoculate us from being led astray by not sound enough coverage of the election news? Well, I think there's, a, you know, as much as I'm trying to sound the alarm about problems, I think there's some alarmism, especially on the left as well, over things that are 
not necessarily proven. And I think it's very important to stick with the evidence, especially in our social media era. It is very difficult to separate out what's true from what people expect to be true. And it, you know, it's very easy to be taken in by claims of, uh, you know, for, for, let's take a, a, an example. There's a widely held belief that Ivanka Trump, because of some investments she has in China, is actually controlling American voting machines. So this is a kind of conspiracy theory on the left that it's brought up to me all the time. And it's not supported by the evidence. And yet it's something that is consistently put out there uh, because people are in a very conspiratorial mood right now. I think there's more of that on the right than the left, but there's plenty of that on the left. And I am very uh, concerned that, you know, if there is a Trump victory, it's not clear to me that people on the left are going to accept it, even if the election is run fairly, because this election is seen as such an existential threat to the American democracy. And so we're really in this very precarious period. And people need to look at when they see things that, uh, especially on social media, that seem to line up with what they believe the, the situation is likely to be. So Democrats believing that everything is voter suppression and Republicans believing that there's massive voter fraud. You need to take a close look, examine the evidence. And before you start spreading information that might be misinformation or disinformation on social media, you need to look at it carefully and make sure that it is justified. And the claims that Jennifer Cohn makes about the barcodes for which candidate is which versus, and the sort of, uh, the traceable sort of paper backup, not her concerns that she raises, those are not valid ones? Well, I think that there is some validity to some of the things that she says. Okay. I do think that she tends to be not only overly alarming on some things where there's not strong evidence, but also that she is prone to dismiss anyone who disagrees with her as part of a conspiracy. So for example, I ran a conference with a, you know, a, a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. I think you were at that conference. It was called Can American Democracy Survive the 2020 oh, yeah. Elections? That's right. And it led to the production of a report called Fair Elections During the Crisis, which your listeners can find by Googling those terms. It's posted on the UCI Law website. Well, Jennifer Cohn accused me uh, because, because I had invited a particular journalist and because we had funding from among our funders, the Democracy Fund, who she disagrees with on certain issues about voting machines, you know, she dismissed me as part of, you know, this cabal of people who are trying to suppress the truth about what's going on in elections. And that's not how I see myself. I see myself as trying to fairly describe what's going on. Uh, in these elections and to make sure we have more light than heat on these questions. But I've been thrown in, you know, as part of these uh, conspiracy theories, which is, you know, quite concerning. Right. So what you also, what you do do in your book is you admonish scholars, lawyers, and those, as you say, in the public sphere that to continue to speak out, I'm quoting you right now, speak out against voter suppression laws, even at the risk of being labeled, some, at somebody else's quote, raw enemy activists, and at somebody else's quote, who would permit voter fraud to run rampant. There's that part, and you're also asking for the general public to step up, to work continuously to shore up democratic institutions 
I hear that, Rick, and I'm also taking measure of a very exhausted public since January of 2017. How are we going to, to mobilize this, to, to maintain a transparency and oversight of what's unfolding in this electoral season in the exhausted state many people are that are very involved in the electoral process? Yeah, I completely understand the exhaustion. I do think that people are motivated very much by this uh, coming election. I don't think that energy is going to be a problem as we get close to November and as people okay. recognize that we're, we're getting close. But in terms of what the average person can do, uh, I think you've hit on uh, one of the key points, which is pressing our election administrators and officials for transparency and planning. Do they have a plan B? What happens if power goes out at the polling places? Yeah. What happens if we have a terrorist attack or a natural disaster? We need to know what the plans are and we need to know how information is going to be communicated so people will have the ability to engage in uh, the democratic process in a fair way. And so it's not too early to start asking your local election administrators what their plans are and to be attentive and to be ready to mobilize in case there are threats to the rule of law going forward. Well, at least in Orange County, we can rely on our administrator Neil Kelly, not that I was here to, I didn't see this plug coming, but he's not only good to us, but he's an exemplary administrator that's called on in various parts of the country and, and provides national leadership. So there's, that's one thing locally, we can dispatch him on having him do his own job, but elsewhere, it is a huge concern. Well, at the close of the Supreme Court of the United States year in review yesterday, Rick, you lobbed this question to your panelists, and I'll lob it back to you. The likelihood of Biden versus Trump going to the Supreme Court this fall, is there a reason that you didn't say Trump versus Biden, Biden versus Trump? That was half of the question involved in, in this parlor game, I guess, that's underway already. You know, the Biden-Trump order does not really matter. It does uh, not. To, to my point, no. But I, I, what I was trying to get at is that everything is so... Um, everything is so politicized right now, and uh, all of our political questions seem to end up one way or the other at the Supreme Court, that if the election is very close, I do think we could expect to see things uh, getting there again. Uh, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic that we can avoid that. Uh, if it do gets the Supreme Court, unfortunately, the pattern we've seen so far this year is a partisan divide on the Supreme Court as well. And so I am hoping that you know, as we move forward into the real heart of the election season, that we're going to be able to resolve most of our questions without going to court. Uh, one of the things that is heartening is that there are fewer places right now in the country than there were a few months ago that are still putting barriers in front of people who want to be able to vote by mail. Um, I think we need to have safe vote by mail. We need to have safe in-person voting. And I'm also a little bit more hopeful than I was a few weeks ago that Congress, when it passes its big coronavirus bill, the next one, it's going to include more funding for improving our election process. So it's not quite as bleak as I thought it looked a few weeks ago, but I'm still quite concerned. So to the analogy as I close here with you is that with the category five hurricane moving 
with this electoral season, at least FEMA is going to send us some emergency temporary housing. All right, I'll go with that. That sounds fine. What I'd say is maybe that's what we expect is coming, but uh, we better keep calling their offices to make sure it actually comes because now is not the time to be complacent. No, not at all. Well, Rick Hessen, I really appreciate your taking the time today. There, there's no analyst like you to, to give us the button-down assessment of institutions involved with elections in the U.S. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. My guest was UCI Law School professor, author, and election law commentator Rick Hassan with his latest book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, published by Yale University Press, available at your independent book dealer or the Yale University Press website. We'll be right back with my next guest, Professor Daniel Parker, to talk about the contact tracing workshops he's helped design for the purpose of Orange County getting a handle on the spread of COVID. back to the show. My next guest is Daniel Parker, UCI Professor of Public Health. He's here to talk about UC Irvine launching a health and equity tracing workshop for the transmission of COVID training for the transmission of COVID-19, training Orange County Healthcare staff, UCI students and community members. Daniel Parker designed the program with a fitting background to address the need for tracers to be outfitted with the proper interpersonal abilities. Daniel completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Anthropology at the University of Washington and both his Master's and PhD in Anthropology and Demography at Penn State University. His research interests include infectious disease epidemiology, Global Information Systems, or GIS, as we all know by now, the shorthand, Global Health, Disease Ecology, and of course, Anthropology. He is particularly interested in the ways that human movement and migration patterns influence the distribution of infectious diseases, treatment-seeking behavior, and health outcomes. Results of these types of analyses are beneficial for informing public health interventions, like what we have before us today. Daniel comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Daniel Parker. Thank you so much, Claudia. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's good. Right here, just before uh, we're just at the launching of this program, at, uh, next week at the taping here on July 24th, First, I just have to ask you, like I ask all my epidemiologist connections, I have to ask, when did the pandemic first come onto your radar? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I watch the news and, and uh, social media, and I, I, I keep up with these things to an extent because there's lots of little events that start off looking a little bit how this one started off, um, but most of them don't 
caused the damage that this one has caused. So, so back in December, I was watching it a little bit nervously, but not, not yet thinking that it was going to go global like it did. And then about towards the end of, about mid-February and towards the end of February, I started thinking, man, I, I better get ready to teach my, my spring classes online. I started talking to uh, uh, my chair and some other people in the department to see if I could do that. And then, and then of course, by March, it was, it was obvious that it was already here. And so things were going to be very different for a while, at least. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us how this tracing will work as a way of letting our listeners know how to be prepared and how to engage and support you in these efforts. Right. So this, this is a, um, I, I have to stress this, that this, this disease is a, it's a really fast moving one. And that added to the fact that it, it really seems that people who have the disease can be spreading it before they know they have it. And some people may never even know that they have it. They may have been really mildly symptomatic or completely without symptoms. So those two things combined, it's fast moving and you can spread it when you don't even know you have it. It makes it complicated to do uh, set up a normal isolation or quarantine system, right? Because you don't even know who you've come into contact with that, that would have had it. They, they may not even know that they had the disease. Right. So that's where contact tracing comes in. So the idea behind it is that if you find somebody who has, has a disease, they've been confirmed with the disease, you interview them, you go back and find the people that they've been in contact with, and then you have to make contact with those people, ask them to get tested as well, and also ask them who they've come into contact with in the last couple of weeks. And then you go back another step there and go ahead and notify those folks. So what this does is it tells people, um, you don't even have to tell them who they came into contact with, right? It, it, you just, you, you notify them that they've been in contact with somebody who's been diagnosed with the disease, um, we recommend that you get tested now um, and also go ahead and quarantine if you're not sick or isolate if you are. So this whole cultural sensitivity factor comes in where you're either asking, you're both asking the one who's tested positive and then the cultural sensitivity to let, to notify others because you're not only notifying them, but they will have data. You're still also interested because you're tracing in every which way, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, so, so for example, that second generation of people that you're contacting, those yes. could turn into a case as well. And then you need to, that, that, that starts the process all over again with them and their contacts. So you have to go back a couple of contacts back from them too. And to get at your other point there, the, the cultural um, humility and uh, not just cultural, sociocultural economic humility that is necessary for this gets at whether or not you're even able to make contact and keep contact with people. So this is really dependent on, on whether or not you can get in touch with people, whether they will talk to you, whether they feel comfortable enough to tell you, um, to, to give you details. And you could imagine there's lots of reasons why people aren't going to pick up the phone in the first place if they don't recognize the number um, oh, that's right. or are not going to talk to you. They, they feel like you're a government official and they don't trust the government. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of things going on right now that would make people not trust officials. Um, and so you have to kind of find a way to get around all of those things. And that's what we are aiming to address, essentially. So I that can go into, phone Yeah, I can go into more details of that. But go, go right, ahead. right. The phone number, I mean, you may not know exactly what it is right now, but that phone number we need at KUCI to develop public service announcements for, for you and others to use so that, People recognize that, and it's not some spam, as you said. So exactly. that's, that's a huge first step. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I don't know about you or, or other listeners, but I've, I've been getting so many calls from people that I don't know. I, I, I never answer. <laughs> it's a, right, right. If I don't recognize it, I just don't answer. I don't have time to. And, and you're competing with canvassers and other kinds of political 
yes. ventures going into the general election season, that that's going to continue. And then I wanted to ask too about, have you developed in your template for fanning out with your tracers? There's a path for those that are accepting that this pandemic is real. And then the skeptics, you must have a whole different line of questions to keep engaging a skeptic that you think is potentially a carrier, a transmitter. Yeah, so, so an important part of this, the workshop we're doing is to teach people, it's not just for the tracers, but for them first, um, so that they can answer basic questions, right? So that they can, they can get around some of the disinformation that's out there. Um, we're, not, we're not training them to be actual epidemiologists, but we want to give them a basic background so they can understand the, the basic facts that we know right now, um, so that they can hopefully deal with those situations. But it's, it's true that you're never going to be able to reach everybody and not everybody that you reach is going to quarantine or isolate. And some of them, that's going to be because they just don't want to. Some people, because it's very difficult for them to do it. You know, the, some of the places where, like in Orange County and all over the world, really, um, some places where the biggest burden is, these are places where you have large families living in very small houses. And if you're in that situation, then it makes it very difficult to quarantine or isolate. Well, I, I knew we were in a lot of trouble when I viewed a video, I'm trying to think of the source of posting it on Twitter, and her name is Dr. Kelly Victory, and she puts on an emergency management physician's lab coat. And I knew we were in trouble when she looks in the camera and she says, the recent pandemic. <laughs> so, and, and then became a, a total denier of the, the healthcare emergency. So there are so many headwinds for tracers to do an adequate job. And then, yeah, yeah. And then the concern is, I'm a skeptic about how can you possibly do what you need to do. So many horses out of the barn now with so many, there's there's the group that are waiting to get their test results. There's those that are waiting to be tested. And there's those that are wondering whether they'll ever be tested. So there's these, all these delays and mounting pervasiveness of COVID-19 in Orange County and in the state. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so your skepticism then is about whether or not contact tracing would work. Is that correct? Or? That there's too many people uh, now yeah. that we have too many cases. How can you catch up in time to effectively start tracking down and get ahead of the spread? And so what I would say is by itself, no, it can't. We have, we have too many cases right now. The caseload is too high, but it's not a tool that you use by itself. Um, and okay. the, way I've, the way I've been trying to conceptualize it and explain it is if you could imagine a forest fire and it's a, a raging forest fire, and you have to do lots of different things to, to put it out. But after you've put it out, um, you still have parts of the ground that are kind of hot. You maybe have like smoldering embers just under the soil. or And that's been tree. used. That, that analogy has right. been used in public health throughout the country, I think. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so those little spots, even after the fire is basically out, you've got to watch them. And when they flare up, you've got to be able to react to that really fast. So that's what contact tracing is good for. I mean, okay. you, could get, you could get that situation at the beginning of the forest fire, right? So where you've got these little flare-ups and you put them out real fast so it doesn't go into a full-on raging fire. Or again, at the end, when you've got it basically under control and you just want to keep it from starting again. So that's the point of contact tracing, really. You can't okay. put the whole fire out with contact tracing. But yeah, so, so our workshop is going to be in both English and Spanish. I think that's, that's kind of huge, I believe. I don't know yeah. if there are any other contact tracing training programs that are in Spanish. I, I don't know of any in the U.S. 
It's doesn't only, mean they don't exist. But. Only English and Spanish, though, here. Let's, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, ideally, we would also have Vietnamese and Korean and Farsi, uh, um, but we don't have the capability to do that just yet. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Professor Daniel Parker, talking about the contact tracing workshop he's helped design for the purpose of Orange County getting a handle on the spread of COVID-19. So how do people enroll and what kind of talents are you screening them for? And uh, it starts next, starts on the 27th of this July month. Right. So, so it kind of got a kickoff already this week, actually, with a, uh, with a forum on Monday. Okay. Uh, we started off with a, a town hall-like forum event uh, with some, uh, we, we drew in some people from uh, community-based organizations, like from Latino Health Access. So Dr. America Bracho was there, gave some, uh, a great talk and some, uh, Good. Uh, some information. Um, several others were there, too. It was a really, it was a great event. I think uh, 380 plus people attended it. Key here is the, the health equity component. And actually, actually, so I've, I've heard lots of, lots of people use this term, health equity, health equity. Uh, and Dr. America Bracho, I think, put it in a frame that I like, that, yes. that, made, it, that made it make most sense to me. Um, and that was that it's, it's essentially a hot spot focused approach. But sometimes the hot spot isn't just about geography. It could be a subset of the population as well. Like a so, meatpacking plant. Yeah, or, or, or it could also be, you know, adult males or um, oh i see a demographic hotspot exactly it could be that as well um but instead and when i'm doing malaria work sometimes we talk about hot spots and hot pops um but the problem with that kind of terminology is that it could be stigmatizing too um so when Mm, you start using a term like health equity you get around that and that's that's what i really like about that so that's what we're doing with the approaches to COVID-19, um, but also we're building that into the workshop in itself. So, so we wanted to make sure that we had people coming from the communities that were most affected by this epidemic, our local epidemic um, right now, so that they can be a part of the solution to it as well. It's, it's partially the health equity approach, but also, um, as we were talking about earlier, yes. uh, it'd be difficult to get into contact with people for lots of reasons, but I believe that it's easier if you have somebody coming from a community for that person to know what the best way to communicate with and get in touch with people from that community. Like the peer-to-peer model in the Prometores is with Dr. Bracho's CEO of Latino Health Access. Oh, I'm sure. Have you seen anything like her program elsewhere? I mean, or is this like yes. a really great secrets? Okay. Okay. Yes, it is. So I, I, I usually do work in Southeast Asia, for example. And uh, when we're doing malaria work, we have community health workers. We have community engagement teams working with us. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very similar scenario. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you have people from the communities um, who are helping things. And these, let's be honest, these are the people who, they're, they're saving the most lives. It's, right. uh, they, they do amazing things. And the peer-to-peer part is really magical. And they know exactly how to reach the person where they are. It, it will be so effective. Exactly. That. And there's some other complications with this, too, that don't get thought about, uh, that, aren't, that aren't discussed much. And that's okay. um, when people are isolating or quarantining, this can be really hard on a family that doesn't have the luxury of working from home or they're not independently wealthy, right? So, right. so that could mean that you're not making money for two weeks or that you've lost your job. And it could also be that you don't have an extra room in your house that you could isolate or quarantine in to stay away from the rest of your family. Um, and there are some programs in the county 
where they could set up like a motel room that's not being used right now. And I think there's some funding and some, some food that's available for people. But the process is a little bit complicated to navigate paperwork, you know, to get in contact with the right people. So that part, also the community-based organizations like Latino Health Access can really help with this. They know how to navigate the system and how to communicate that to the people who need the help. Well, Daniel, I shudder to think what would happen because we are at the precipice now if the unemployment benefits mm. stop on yes. the dime and households will have to double up during mm. this pandemic just so they can keep a roof over their head. So how are you building that into the tracing mechanisms? The, to, to help with the economy? I mean, all, to, not all to, well, I mean it's, it's essential that the economy strengthen the household's dispositions but it's a problem yes. if you're uh, you're going to you were talking about denser households in some instances where there are fewer resources but when those resources totally vanish then you we're, you're going to have even more intensity of dwellings uh, exactly as, uh, individuals exactly. and units yeah there are lots of nasty feedbacks here right it's um, oh. so so the people that are right now most likely to get the disease appear to be people who are coming from lower income areas. They're coming from communities with a high proportion of uh, uh, people of color. And a lot of them are working, they don't have, they're not in jobs like mine where I can work from my computer from home. Um, and that's, that's just fine. Um, and so they, they have some really difficult decisions to make about whether or not they even want to get tested, if they can get a test, if they can afford a test. Um, and then what happens if that test comes back positive? Do you, do you stop what? working in and then right. you, you can't put food on the table? You might lose your job. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a, that's, I mean, that's what these epidemics do, right? They, uh, they just, they really expose these um, nasty little uh, inequalities that, that exist in our society. They're, they're already obvious little. to lots of people, but yeah, and they're not little, actually. They're not little. And, yeah. and the fire analogy you're using, it's like the gusts, the winds are whipping up and there's going <laughs> to be a, a more intense certain spread of the pandemic. So, yes. so that's a that's a big that's a problem. And I don't know about how how ready the Orange County Health Care Agency is in anticipating that it it's almost inevitable. I you know with, with at the risk of sounding alarmed. Right. It's um. I mean, the Orange County Health Care Agency they are forced with a huge task. Um, and there are enormous political pressures on them. I mean, this is a once in a century type of an event, right? So, uh, we, I mean, we should, have, we should have all been better prepared for this, but now we have to deal with it. And uh, I mean, local public health authorities, are, they're stressed, they're overworked, they're understaffed. It's, it's, it's a problem. And there hasn't been a whole lot of leadership from, from really far up high. So, so for me, it's been frustrating watching this epidemic roll out in, in, my, in my backyard Normally, I'm working in, in low-resource settings, like in uh, rural parts of Myanmar or Laos. Um, and so we're, we're always working under this, uh, this situation where you don't have enough money and, and diagnostics aren't available. So it's been amazing to watch how this rolls out here. And we still have the same problems. Just accessing a diagnostic test is it's hard well, to do, right? It's, it's amazing. And, but there's no leadership from, I mean, from the federal level. It's like everybody's passing the buck. The federal government passes the buck to the states and it gets passed down to the counties. And then now it looks like it's just falling on the communities. And thankfully we have some communities that are, that are really strong, but that's, there, there's going to be um, heterogeneity in that too, I think. Well, I would like to think that 
the board of supervisor member, Don Wagner, who represents UC Irvine all the way up to Anaheim Hills, that he will, it's late in the game, but if that he will understand, develop some kind of public health literacy, because I think it's been a big concern, his lack of leadership. His mind is not on public health. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't speak to that too much. I don't know. I, I, I don't honestly know local politics that well because I'm relatively new to the area. Well, so. you can trust <laughs> so. that, the, that the journalists and public health activists are watching every right. time he appears publicly and his lack of curiosity about public health is um, a frightening phenomenon to behold. So uh, that's, mm. that's on me. I'm not, I'm not putting you in a position of having <laughs> yeah. to own that. But I, in my, my platform here, I have to remind people that that is when you were talking about leadership, the leadership mm -hmm. is here. We don't ever see a mask anywhere near him when he mm. is speaking to the public. And that very simple optic would go a long way to start helping us deal with this pandemic here. Yeah. Well, are there any community leaders you'd like to say are really strong in promoting and supporting your project? People that get it that are that are the, the ones that you're glad are in your corner. So we, we're working closely with Latino Health Access. So that would be uh, Dr. America Bracho. I, I think you know, you know who that is already. Yes, I do know her. Um, we've also been working with uh, uh, Marianne Fu from Orange County Asian and Pacific Islander Community Agency as well, so o Ocapica, and there's a couple of others in there that I'm blanking on right now, sorry. <laughs> um, but those are the two that we've been working most closely with. And I, and I believe, um, I, I know that uh, Latino Health Access, they also have some new collaborative efforts going on with the Orange County Healthcare Agency to really focus on the hotspots that we have now in uh, Anaheim and Santa Ana. And, and so that's, that's also a health equity approach, right? They're, right? they're focusing their efforts there. And Dr. America Bradshaw, I think she's been working here for, for decades already. So decades, she knows these absolutely. communities and she's, um, she's the kind of community leader that you really need at, the, at this time. It would be nice to see that same kind of leadership at, at higher up levels too, because you know, if we had, uh, we have problems with testing and these are the sorts of things that, that uh, federal government or state government could be able to help with to make sure we have the regions that we need and the materials and everything so that we don't have testing shortages or delays and getting test results back. And she says it very succinctly in her public forum. She says the public health message has been very fragmented. And mm -hmm. she says that repeatedly and that captures so much. Well, as we draw down our time together, my last question is, Daniel Parker, I, and I always ask this to people that have unwieldy problems to solve and attend to, what would you do if you had unlimited resources? Oh, so that's a big question, huh? Um, and you mean specific to our current situation with the Correct. pandemic? Yeah. Yes. Well, so for me, it starts with, you want people to be able to get diagnosed in, in the first place. So you need the resources to make it so that people can access, people, people don't even hesitate to go get a test, right? Um, so that includes making it possible for them to get the test so that they don't have to pay a lot of money for the test, maybe even better if it's just free. Um, so there's no hesitation on the behalf of anybody with regard to the test. The second level of that is, the reason that some people aren't going to want to get a test is because if that result comes back positive, then that means they can't work or they're out of work. So if I had all the money in the world, that's, the, that, that's a problem that should be fixed as well. So that you shouldn't lose your job because you got sick. 
So, so you don't even have to worry about that. Um, and those two things, I believe, if we could if we could spread that kind of across the board, that would make things a lot better for us. Um, well, thank you. I know every epidemiologist, public health official has so much on their plate and it's really hard to squeeze in a time for an interview like with us. So I really thank you for taking the time today. No problem, Claudia. I'm, I'm happy to be here. My guest was Professor Daniel Parker talking about the contact tracing workshops he's helped design for the purpose of Orange County getting a bit of a handle on the spread of COVID-19. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, I'll have on UCI political science professor Tony Smith to cover the Joe Biden vice presidential nominee naming sweepstakes. We'll also hear from the new and founding dean of UCI's School of Pharmacology, Jan Hirsch. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks? You know the drill.